You are listening to Go Full Crypto. I'm your host, Rogopshi Palway. This podcast is your best resource for crypto stories in the form of discussions and interviews. We uncomplexify tech jargon and we like to keep it simple. My co-host, Keegan Francis and I, we're here to empower you with the knowledge you need to confidently navigate your way into the world of crypto. Join us as we embark on the journey of driving the adoption of cryptocurrency. Join us in going full crypto. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. At no point in time should the topics of discussion be construed or taken as investment advice. Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and their guests on this podcast will not be held accountable for any losses. The content discussed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are intended to be for informational purposes only. Welcome to episode 17, everyone. This one's going to be a spicy episode because we are going to uncover what really happened to Gerald Cotton and Quadriga CX. You may have heard of this particular kind of debacle that took place at the end of 2018, where the founder of this cryptocurrency exchange called Quadriga CX died and apparently had the only keys to the exchange that locked up over $190 million worth of people's funds. So today, we're going to talk and explore that case, the curious case of Quadriga CX. Let's begin. So um, to get a little bit familiar with um, the usage of Quadriga CX, let's really talk about, um, Keegan, your experiences with that exchange because you used to use that exchange. Can you tell our listeners about why or how you chose that exchange? Sure. Yeah. In the the previous episode that we did, episode 15, uh, we covered that I used to get paid in Bitcoin and I used to have that my salary deposited directly onto Quadriga CX, which uh, in hindsight is kind of a a risky thing to be doing with uh, with your Bitcoin salary. Uh, and that that is how, why I use Quadriga, because I needed to uh, transfer or exchange my Bitcoin for Canadian dollars to pay whatever expenses I had at the time, my Canadian dollars expenses, that is, yeah. So when was it that you were getting paid uh, or your salary deposited on Quadriga? That was uh for the first bit of 2018 so probably from january until april may june area of 2018 i I started to notice some really weird things happening with my deposits uh, and that when was that what that was near the end of when i stopped using quadriga so around june or july okay you started noticing something interesting in june or july with your deposits or withdrawals with with my canadian dollar withdrawal so after i got the bitcoin deposits approved i transferred it to canadian dollars and then quadriga would hang on before you explain that um I, i want our listeners to understand what arrangement your employer had with quadriga so did quadriga essentially function as a bank for you that's essentially how most slash all cryptocurrency exchanges operate as they're essentially depositors. You give them money and they hold on to them, hold on to that money for you and offer you financial services uh, on top of that platform. They essentially act as custodians and service providers for cryptocurrency. 
Okay. So in, the, in that sense, most, if not all, cryptocurrency exchanges are banks. It just they're not. They don't formally hold that title. They don't have depositor insurance, for example. Right. Okay. So that was the case where you, where your employer paid your salary, part of your salary, or all of your salary. Uh, my entire salary, and that's something that I had to opt into. And my employer, this was kind of a cool arrangement that we had uh, since. My employer was a cryptocurrency company of sorts. They're actually a nonprofit that was that was mandated to produce a code base, and the donors all donated um, to the nonprofit in Bitcoin. And so the company's reserves was in Bitcoin. It was actually cheaper for the company to pay its employees in Bitcoin because, well, uh, if they paid them in Canadian dollars, the company would have to liquidate some amount of, of Bitcoin into Canadian dollars. So. They offered me, hey, we'll actually give you a 5% raise uh, if you take your salary in Bitcoin. I said, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. And did that's, you, <laughs> that's what I did. Did you opt in because of the raise or because of the Bitcoin? Both. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that, that 5% uh, on top of my salary was actually because, uh, like to cover whatever volatility was in the market that day. Okay. So, but the time, by the, between the time that they actually sent the transaction and it was received by me and then transferred into Canadian dollars, I may have gotten more or less um, my actual salary, like my what my salary was on paper. All right. So we've covered the fact that Quadriga Exchange, uh, Quadriga CX, the exchange functioned as a bank and your employer deposited your salary onto your account yeah. uh, on Quadriga CX and around June or July of 2018, you started noticing something strange with withdrawals into Canadian dollar from the exchange. What did you notice? Yeah, well, I noticed that the withdrawals were taking a longer and longer time to complete. What does that mean? Can you elaborate? Yeah, so it was a wire transfer that actually um, facilitated or the, the Canadian dollars got into my bank account my Canadian dollar bank account through a wire transfer from Quadriga. And when that wire transfer would come into my, my bank account, I would go in, I would log in and I'd see, okay, Quadriga CX paid this amount of Canadian dollars on this day. I was like, okay, cool. That sounds good. That's for the first six months that I was doing this whole operation. Uh, th that only took between two, three, four days, which is a normal amount of time for a wire transfer to take. Uh, six months into this, when I started to notice fishy behavior or fishy business, uh, those deposits started taking a week, two weeks. And what, the last deposit that I got before I stopped doing this took three weeks. And that's and I also furthermore, I, I got the deposit from not a company called it was not a company called Quadriga CX. It was it was a completely different company. Uh, and that was very strange. That was the, the biggest red flag. It's like, OK, well, why is not Quadriga sending me this wire? Why is this random other company sending me this money? And th that was my cue to essentially close my account on Quadriga, move my money off the exchange and, uh, you know, figure out a different strategy. So how did that go down with your employer? Because if you had opted into this and they had decided to deposit your paycheck onto the exchange and you decided that you didn't want to be on the exchange anymore, what did you say to your employer? So every two weeks, I would actually provide my employer with a Bitcoin address. Oh, OK. So it wasn't necessary for them to pay you on Quadriga. 
Right. They could pay me to any Bitcoin wallet. So the whole arrangement was that I would provide them with a Bitcoin address. And then that's that's essentially where the the buck stops. Uh, They would say, "Okay, cool. That's the Bitcoin address you gave us. And that's where we're going to send this money. And and you're considered paid after that. Hang on. So initially it wasn't them that chose Quadriga. It was just something that you had an account on and you said, "Okay, hey, short like pay me in bitcoin give me a five percent raise and then i will give you this bitcoin address that's right so quadrigo was my off my crypto offboarding strategy uh so like for uh, to clarify an offboarding strategy is how do you liquidate bitcoin into canadian dollars and, or any other crypto asset or, right exactly and that's crucial for people to have like that's one of the questions we can ask most is uh hey can you actually sell bitcoin for canadian dollars and the answer is yes the thing is, when you want to do that, it's really important that you have that set up ahead of time. And so Quadriga was the exchange that I chose. It was the one that worked best for me at the time to, to liquidate Bitcoin or any other crypto into uh, into Canadian dollars and deposit that into my bank account. I have a side question here. Yeah. What, why did you choose Quadriga CX? Uh, they actually had a pretty slick user interface. It, it wasn't anything special, but it looked really legit. Uh, they had the tickers. Their prices weren't outrageous, uh, meaning their fees. Uh, they had a a basic exchange and an advanced exchange, which was indicative that uh, it was more than just a couple people running this business. Uh, to me, that said that the exchange was... Uh, large, reputable, um, all those things. And so they actually gave off a pretty good vibe. And I think that's why uh, thousands of people ended up using the exchange and then eventually losing their money. And we're going to dive deeper into uh, how it how they made themselves look trustworthy um, when we dive into exactly what happened with the exchange later. Yep. Um, so just to summarize, the way that you choose your exchanges is you look at the user interface you. Oh, I choose my exchanges completely differently now. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, no, there's there's lessons there's learned from, okay. from that. Yeah, just because the, the exchange has a nice user interface does not mean that it's a it's a legit operation. Okay, cool. Good to know because it's really easy to build a really nice looking user interface these days and to build that sort of um, trust factor into making sure that the interface or the first screen that you land on, the landing page of an exchange looks trustworthy. And that unfortunately um, f- fools a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and that was not the case with Quadriga, though. They well, for the first number of years of that business, uh, as far as the official reports go, they were running a completely legitimate business and operation. Now, whether or not the founders or the operators had the intent to eventually turn it into a Ponzi scheme, uh, that intent is unknown because, well, the person's dead now and you can't right. really ask whether or not the intent was there uh but for the first you know years of the business it was it was run completely fine okay so let's go to the part where the the ceo of quadriga zx died this happened yeah go ahead this happened at the end of 2018 it was in december yeah so i had actually stopped using the exchange for about six months at this point and I, I remember waking up reading the news and seeing that as quite the shock. Uh, the part of the story that really struck me as quite odd was that uh, the founder, Gerald Cotton, died with the only keys to the cryptocurrency wallets. Yeah, so keys. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that we haven't explored 
quite um, in in very in depth. And we will get to this. We promise it's just a topic that requires a little bit of prepping. So this is a good preparatory episode yeah. to talk about keys. It, it might be, we actually have a little bit of an opportunity to have a little fun with, with the, an analogy. Uh, so like when you lock your keys inside of your car, for example, if you lose your car keys, uh, you can call a locksmith. Well, there is no locksmith for your cryptocurrency wallet. And that's because if... if if I was to write a program to brute force my way into your cryptocurrency and brute wallet. Brute force just means trying multiple ways of finding a key. So you're trying as many combinations as you possibly can to, uh, in, in an order, sorry, in an attempt to find the right key. Yeah. And my, my new 2020 MacBook Pro, it would, it would take uh, billions of years for a brute force program to work its way into a cryptocurrency wallet. So there is no keysmith or locksmith to unlock crypto wallets. And so that's why Gerald Cotton losing the only set of keys to the Quadriga wallet was such a big deal. And it's because in theory, this wallet had $190 million worth of cryptocurrency on it and no one could get in. Yeah, let's get into that. So just to summarize how why you cannot break into um, or regenerate a key, that's because if you wanted to regenerate a key a cryptocurrency key to get into a wallet, you would require more time than there's time in the universe to regenerate that key. It's simply impossible right now with our computing standard. Infeasible. Yeah, that's that's another way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So $190 million worth of cryptocurrency yeah. was um, stuck in an exchange. Yeah. And that is what was revealed at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. But then we realized that the money wasn't actually there. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> that was the story. You could actually, due to the nature of cryptocurrencies, you can use a software called a block explorer to essentially look inside the crypto addresses that you know belong to someone. So it, where these cryptocurrencies were was, was no mystery at all. Uh, they had Gerald Cotton's computer. They also had, in theory, the addresses, the crypto addresses. Let's just use Bitcoin example. The Bitcoin address that held that amount of money. And they could look at that address and see, okay, yeah, there's that much Bitcoin. There's thousands of Bitcoin there and uh, it's not moving. Okay, cool. Good. Not, it's not going anywhere. We just can't get into it. The, the plot thickens when some... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's uh, Reddit Reddit users, but tech savvy Reddit users, crypto savvy Reddit users. They uh, they were observing these addresses, these Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin addresses, and one day they actually noticed that the money moved, and so that was that that completely blew the narrative that Gerald Cotton had the only keys out of the water. That narrative had to be impossible due to the security of cryptocurrency you can't really regenerate these keys no one has the ability to do that and apparently these Gerald cotton died with the only keys to these wallets yet the the money was moved and therefore the the keys were owned by someone else and so who owned these keys and where's the money now where did it go and that's uh that's essentially i don't know in a nutshell that's where the case left off 
Well, yeah, but there is also more um, explanation and exploration of how the money was moved on and off of the exchange. And I recall reading about how it was a pon it started becoming a Ponzi scheme at some point because allegedly Gerald Cotton moved money off of the cryptocurrency exchange, off of Quadriga CX, and bought real world assets. Yeah, he bought a boat and a plane and multiple Bunch of houses. property. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with the cotton, with the with the money that didn't belong to him, and, and in the effort of then later being able to sell these assets at a profit, making some money off of that um, deal, and then giving this money back to people whenever they wanted to, to, to withdraw from Quadriga. Right, and the other thing that he did with users' funds was deposit it or withdraw it from Quadriga, take that money put it on other exchanges, crypto exchanges, in an attempt to make much more money. And in 2017, this is when the majority of that activity took place. And for those of you, of our listeners that don't know what happened in 2017 in the crypto realm, that's when Bitcoin went up to $25,000 Canadian a piece. That's, it was 20,000 US dollars. It's when the whole crypto market in total was worth about $800 billion. Um, to put it shortly, it's when cryptocurrency reached its all-time high. So Gerald Cotton was actually probably mildly successful with his attempts to multiply the, the funds of his, the Quadriga CX users. But then in January of 2018, that whole bubble popped uh, and that essentially <laughs> cryptocurrency became worth from $800 billion down to about $150 billion. So it decreased by a factor of 75%. The whole market did. And all the prices of all these cryptocurrencies came crashing down and uh, Joe Cotton um, lost a bunch of money that didn't belong to him. And thus, Quadriga CX became a Ponzi scheme after that. That's how that Ponzi scheme narrative gets started. Oh, I can't pay back the users if they want to withdraw. Therefore, I need new users to keep on depositing more money or new money into the exchange so I can make good on my existing users' withdrawals. That's how a Ponzi scheme works. Yeah, that's a lot to take in for anyone who hadn't really known the depths of how um, the Quadriga CX story really entangled. And this brings us to a point of really understanding how this was possible in the first place. And one of the reasons is that during that time, having a cryptocurrency exchange or just cryptocurrencies in general, we're in a very legal gray area uh, or gray legal area. And what, let's talk about how this could have been prevented. Yeah, absolutely. So like you- Prevention and detection, actually. How could it yeah. have been prevented and detected? And it actually could have been both. It definitely could have been prevented and uh, what was the other word you detected. used? Detected. Detected, yes. Well, after you detect it, then you prevent it, I suppose. It would yeah. be the, the chain yeah, of events. Just, that's the order, right? <laughs> uh, yes. So legal gray area, that is, I would, I would say that was the right set of words to use for how Canada, uh, which is where Quadriga was based out of, treated cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, I mean, cryptocurrencies are only 11 years old anyway, so... But I do think that regulators have a bit of a responsibility to be on top of emerging and disruptive technology. And in this case, they, they just simply were not equipped to handle such a situation. 
even if Quadriga was under the microscope and they were watching the business, uh, the business could be reporting its financial statements completely legitimately, and they still wouldn't know that there's a Ponzi scheme being run underneath. It's not really until you look at the blockchain and the, the activity uh, and the movement of funds, of users' funds, that you start to understand the greater picture of what Quadriga was doing. And this is possible today, and it was possible in 2017 to do so. Uh, there's a new branch of software called Blockchain Forensic Tools that allow analysts, financial analysts, and um, financial crime analysts, <laughs> detectors, police force, uh, you know, whoever is in charge of detecting these kinds of fraudulent operations, this software allows them to essentially scan the entire network and look for these situations. And you could even scan a specific address. So given a Quadriga CX address, a Bitcoin address, plug that into this software and you can kind of tell where your money is moving within that ecosystem. So just a couple of things uh, for a refresher for definitions. Blockchain technology is the technology that underpins cryptocurrency. And you can think of it as... Uh, the function that the internet provides for Facebook, the application, um, crypto, blockchain provides the same function to cryptocurrencies. So what the internet is to Facebook, blockchain is to cryptocurrency. And Keegan was talking about block, block explorers or looking at these addresses and I'm using all of these terminologies that we haven't widely used in our episodes before. So just a little bit more clarification. Uh, think of it as Google Maps. If you punch in an address that you want to go to in Google Maps, you're going to see that it exists if it exists. So addresses are sort of like that um, for all blockchains that are public. Um, and Bitcoin is a public blockchain um, and well, it is a public blockchain, just for those of you who didn't know. There's three kinds of blockchains, public, private and hybrid. Um, that's a mix of public and private. So for public blockchains, you can see all of the transactions that take place on the particular network. And that's a super useful feature. That's exactly that feature is why we're able to detect and prevent situations like Quadriga. It, in fact, we could actually prevent and detect a lot of financial crime that's rooted through our traditional banking system if our monetary system was built on blockchain technology. Is like, like you rightfully pointed out uh, some, some of the definitions, some of the analogies that we use to describe blockchain to people. Uh, the, the properties that emerge from blockchain is transparency, auditability, and immutability. So the ability to not change it. Uh, the one that we're really interested in with respect to Quadriga is transparent. Sorry, the two. The two that we're really interested in is transparency and auditability. Yep. The, ab the ability to audit a set of transactions or an address to see what activity is taking place. And that's that essentially address. what happened. Because if some Reddit users were um, looking at the address that supposedly held um, huge chunks of money, um, it was um, Quadriga's reserve of some sort. And if the move, money moved out of that address, then that was that's just transparent because that is just how it is. And um, like you said, blockchain provides that sort of functionality to regulators or just everyday people, as long as it's a public blockchain. So getting back to how this could have been prevented, if regulators had the know-how and the knowledge base and just a little bit of information on how this all works, it could have been prevented. 
But um, it really also goes to say that this is a failure that we learn from. And this is a really good lesson, I would say, for um, people who are now creating really, really good and um, responsible regulations for anyone who wants to start a cryptocurrency exchange. Yeah. In, in Canada, we've actually come a little bit further than that now. So like to spot a good cryptocurrency exchange, I know that we kind of went off on a tangent earlier on this. Uh, you want to make sure that the exchanges that you're signing up for uh, make you go through some sort of KYC process, which is KYC stands for know your client. And it's part of an international anti-money laundering compliance. Uh, they want to know who's putting money onto the exchange and they do that from you uploading your driver's license or passport or a photo identification of some sort. And I can't exactly remember whether or not Quadriga made me do this at the time. But now I know that, you know, if I'm working in Canada and I want to put my Canadian dollars onto exchange to uh, exchange it for Bitcoin, then yeah, I should probably choose an exchange that makes me go through their KYC process. That That's just one touch point of uh, legitimization because then I know that exchange is actually complying with international anti-money laundering laws. Yeah, and I can just think of two things that could go wrong with this. The first one is there are people that are concerned about their privacy. So they can opt in to choose an exchange that doesn't have such strict regulations on KYC and to each their own. Um, that can sometimes also lead to you trusting an exchange that is not trustworthy because if they say they don't need any information from you and you can use an exchange and get, say, a 5x return on your money in a month's time, then those are, there, there's a lot of red flags there. And we covered some of this in episode seven of the podcast. Four. Oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah, no Episode problem. four, <laughs> uh, which is titled Scams, Hacks, and How to Avoid Them. Um, and the second thing about what you said, KYC, there's just uh, so much that can go wrong with trusting the wrong exchange that makes you go through rigorous KYC because then you're just giving them access to your information. And identity. And like, identity. Like, for example, you don't want to give your social insurance number over. That's, that's not part of any KYC process that I've taken part it in. shouldn't be they shouldn't require you to give them your social insurance number for any reason whatsoever and that is a red flag if you see that as an input as an option and some exchanges have this and it's optional um but just be wary and make sure that you're really trusting the right exchange yeah yeah so this is a process that has come into play and um yeah again this I find that in the crypto industry, there are two opinions on this because of the amount of privacy laws that have come about and um, how much people are getting conscious um, about or conscientious about their privacy. So this makes sense. But think of it when you go to a bank. When you go to a bank, you have to provide your identity of some sort if you want to create an account. Same thing with uh, Airbnb as well. I remember I needed to upload either my passport or my driver's license and give them a couple of points of identification so they could really truly verify that I am a real person and that I wouldn't be um, going in and, um, well, essentially robbing someone. And even if that did happen, then they can point back to me and say, yeah. oh, it was it was this person. We have we identified her as Rugakshi Palwe. And that's kind of the same reason why KYC is applicable to exchanges as well, because if someone tries to... Um, somehow manipulate something on an exchange or try to 
if you've even if you've done something illegal outside the exchange, yeah, then regulators or law enforcement m- might have some sort of course of action with respect to freezing your assets on the exchange or on the bank. Yeah, right, and they can stop your activity. Uh, and then, yeah, aside from all the, this this exchange talk in the cryptocurrency realm, we we have uh, Bitcoin is a censorship resistant technology, and you your Bitcoin address can't be shut down. And you don't need any uh, driver's license or passport to use the Bitcoin network. Uh, If you want to take your Canadian dollars and turn it into Bitcoin, the easiest way to do that is through an exchange. And if you want to work with the exchanges, then you have to go through this KYC. If you don't want to work with the exchanges, then there's uh, significantly less options for turning your Canadian dollars or American dollars into cryptocurrency. So these are all just things that you you must be aware of. Yeah, um, coming back to Quadriga and just thinking about the number of people that were impacted by what happened to this exchange. Now, this was once in a blue moon occurrence where the the CEO of an exchange died all of a sudden and had the only access to keys. I, I want to like just put a spotlight on how fishy the activity or the, just that narrative itself was as Gerald Cotton went to India to start an orphanage and that's where he died. Uh, so the story is that Gerald Cotton has Crohn's disease and was hospitalized while he was in, on this India trip and that's where he died. And the, the story gets a little thicker when you consider that uh, Gerald Cotton filed his will six days before he went to India. And it's like, okay, so I filed my... Filed my uh, my will on a Monday, and then the following Sunday, I happened to die in India, uh, where death certificates are easily forgeable. Uh, so right now in the courts, what's happening is they've liquidated all those other assets in order to recover some amount of funds to reimburse the people that lost their money all across some Canada. Some amount of funds? Fun, uh, they've liquidated his, uh, his assets, assets, like yeah. the boats, the plane, the yeah. houses, in order to reobtain some amount of funds. Yeah to redistribute to the people that were affected. Uh, and some people are considering or asking the question, is Gerald Cotton even really dead? And so right now the courts are uh, deciding whether or not to exhume his body and figure out if, if he's actually... Well, so many conspiracy theories can be born out of this plot. Oh, totally, and yeah. let's just, for the sake of this particular episode, stick with the narrative that what we know happened happened the way that it happened which is that Gerald cotton died in india um of crohn's disease yeah yeah i'm fine with sticking <laughs> with that narrative it's just sometimes fun to you know, like consider all those other th- wacky things that may have happened yeah absolutely um very fun <laughs> okay so getting back to um who was impacted just in episode 13 we covered what kind of wallet you should use or what you should uh use and the reason why i'm bringing this particular episode up is because there were a lot of people who left their cryptocurrency bitcoin and other assets on quadriga cxt exchange when they probably could have done with not having it 
on the exchange or not as much for that matter not as much either and that's where a little bit of um well what is your crypto strategy because if you're going to use your cryptocurrency to day trade or uh, use some sort of financial services that the, the particular exchange offers then okay sure leave your money on there but if you're not going to touch it if you really have no use for it um leaving it on the exchange then it's really best that you take it off of the exchange and put it in the put it in a non-custodial wallet because when your cryptocurrency is on an exchange then it's essentially in their custody and we can see the result of something going wrong with an exchange uh, with what happened with quadriga yeah and th that's exactly right so not only can you spot when there is fishy activity you can actually take action or precautions ahead of time uh in in the case that you think that there might be fishy activity or just to safeguard yourself, even if there's no fishy activity, like it's just a good practice to get in the habit of not having 100% of your portfolio on uh, a cryptocurrency exchange. It doesn't matter which one it is. Uh, what, take a percentage of your portfolio and tuck it away in a non-custodial wallet so that you can really rest easy at night knowing that the exchange can burn and not 100% of your funds are uh, are going to go up in flames with it and that's that's just a good practice to get into yeah so well any parting words for what happened with quadriga keegan that's a good question i usually take like 15 seconds to think about parting words <laughs> when i'm asked this question but no I, I think that we've actually covered a good deal of information uh you just about a minute ago uh struck on the uh, the phrase what is your crypto strategy and having a crypto strategy is really important. So like for me, my crypto strategy was A, to not have all my funds on the exchange, to B, to look for those red flags and then take action when you see them, trust your gut, uh, and then C, uh, have your funds not not all on the exchange put it in there if you don't have any use for them yeah exactly and yeah. explore a, a diverse range of options so quadriga wasn't the only exchange that i was using and it uh and so i actually had other options i had other onboarding options and offboarding options after quadriga went down i was not severely affected by it because i had an intact crypto strategy and your strategy also changed based on where you were uh, with... Um, well, in my life. <laughs> in, well, I was going to say, in your, uh, yeah, of course, sure. In your life, but also what your goals were for yeah. that particular period of time. Because in 2018, you were getting paid from your buyer employer um, in, Bitcoin. in Bitcoin. And well, now you're, <laughs> you do it right now as well because you are employing yourself. Um, but the crypto strategy that is meant for an individual really is um, based off of what their goals are for the growth of their money so it's all it's what we do if you have questions on that definitely reach out um and i actually wanted to ask an open question to our listeners um on the theme of ponzi schemes and getting involved in something that turned out to be a failure do you have any stories of where you thought you could trust an exchange or you thought you could trust an ATM or whatever method that you have used before to procure cryptocurrency? Do you have any stories where that went really south? 
If you do, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to feature your story on our podcast so that once more people hear about it, they can avoid that mistake if at all that's possible. I uh, I can actually go first <laughs> on that one. I have a, go a first story of when I got spoofed by a scam. It was a, uh, a Bitcoin mining scam. So if you've heard of mining and, and you're not technically adept to implement a miner in your own home, uh, this was me in around 2015, 2016. And so I gave some money to this mining company and they promised me X amount of return per day. And their story was, okay, you're gonna buy this mining power, this hash power from us, and you're gonna get the proceeds that you uh, that you purchased from this, uh, from this hash power. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Um, I'm gonna get daily, daily income, passive income. Who doesn't love that? Uh, and they actually paid me out for about two months straight. And then one day the website went down, the payout stopped, and I lost uh, I lost about $600. And uh, I put in about uh, two grand. So I got 1,400 back. I got actually paid back in Bitcoin. It wasn't Canadian dollars. So that now that Bitcoin has since ro- risen and I actually did well on the investment, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that I got spoofed and it happens to everyone. And uh, you shouldn't really feel ashamed that uh, that this happens to you. And to Murugakshi's note, yeah, we'd love to hear about these stories because it's it's definitely our business to know about this stuff so that we can help other people not make the same mistakes that we've made in the past. This was just one of my mistakes that I've made. Uh, There have been others and I can now safely tell you about this and tell you how to avoid it. Don't buy mining power from companies uh, unless it's Binance. But uh, that's, that's, that's another episode. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what do you mean by other companies? You're just shutting down all probably trustworthy companies simply because of one experience. Yeah, I, the thing is, I haven't seen any other companies pull this off uh, in a legitimate way since then. I've, I've looked for other mine, uh, like co-mining opportunities after that, and I haven't found any. So maybe I'm just... Uh, unreasonably making the assumption that uh, all mining companies are uh, uh, are, are scams, but uh, that's not true. <laughs> right, that would be very disingenuous of me. Yes, okay, cool. Thank you for <laughs> um, restating that. And so you asked me what my parting thoughts is on the, the perfect way to end this episode, and that is to ask our listeners dearly to rate, review, and like our podcast on whatever platform that you're listening it on so that might be youtube hit that subscribe button and that might be spotify give us a rating and it might be apple podcasts so give us that review and then that'd be that'd be great that's that's my parting thought (laughs) thank you for sharing your parting thoughts keegan um we look forward to hearing from our listeners and our viewers on youtube uh, of any stories that you would like to share with the rest of our audience um, in, in hopes of helping someone else avoid the same mistake. All right, so stay tuned everyone and talk to you next time.